0: Good morning. How are y'all? It's good to see you. I want to um, just take a couple of minutes and introduce you to the book of Luke. I know we've been in Matthew for months, but um, as we wind down here, I want to leave you with my favorite passages from Luke. Luke is the book that I learned from on how to live. I am prone to making mistakes. I'm prone to... Uh, doing selfish things that get me in trouble my entire life. I mean, it didn't start when I was 40 or 50 and got senile, it it started when I was about six of me making mistakes and realizing the consequence were not always fun. So take your Bibles this morning and go to Luke chapter 17. Jesus is going to tell his disciples how to live. That's the instruction that I need. I need to know what to do next. All right, because generally what I usually do is regret what I did last. All right, knowing what to do next saves me regret. Jesus said to his disciples, temptations are sure to come, comma. Temptations to everything bad are going to come. No matter what happens, what you can count on in this life is that there'll be temptations that are going to cause you to have distraction from what God wants you to do. Temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and you were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Jesus spent so much time teaching his disciples, the first 12 to 70, all right, the first 12 to 70 people that were following Jesus, he spent so much time preparing them for what was going to happen next for them. They had no idea. But Jesus had ideas what was going to happen. And previously, and just just to bring this into context, in the passages before this, Jesus had taught about the prodigal son and Lazarus and the rich man. In both cases, the prodigal son was the son who had left the father and drawn his inheritance and gone off into the world and lived high and lavishly and ate, drank, and be married and ran out of money and eventually ended up sitting with the pigs eating corn husks because he was so hungry. And he thought, I should go back to dad's house and become a field servant because they eat better than me, right? And so he went back to his father's house and his father was overwhelmed. When he saw his son coming, who was wayward, he was overwhelmed with joy. And he killed a calf and he called his friends and they threw a party and welcomed the son home. Had he spent his inheritance? He had indeed. Didn't matter to dad. Dad was glad to see him come home. But the brother who had stayed and served the father and didn't run away and spend his money was in the corner and he was mad. It's like, he should have stayed gone. I've been here the whole time. I've been doing everything for dad, and I didn't get no party. It's a Pharisee. Jesus is teaching them about who's in and who's out. Just because you stayed and looked good didn't matter. It was more important to repent and come home. And they were welcomed home. Jesus talked about Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus was the rich guy who sat at his table, and Lazarus was the poor beggar who sat at the foot of the table and gleaned the crumbs that fell off the rich man's bread. He was so hungry. He was so so just disturbingly rejected that the rich man didn't even barely notice him, that he was hungry while he was feasting. And And Jesus goes on to say, they both died. And Lazarus went to heaven. And was comforted by Abraham. and It says he was comforted in Abraham's bosom. He was was with him. And the rich man went to hell. And one day the rich man looked over and he saw over a great chasm that no one could cross. He saw Lazarus being comforted in heaven. And he cried out to him. Father Abraham, send Lazarus over with just a drop of water to cool my torture of my torment. And Abraham says, there's no way. That, that can happen because of this great chasm. And you're in hell, and Lazarus is in heaven, and once you make that choice, once you pass, that's it. And the rich man said, well, then send Lazarus back to earth to tell my brothers, because I have five brothers that I love. They don't want to come here. But it's too late. And Jesus is teaching them because the rich man portrays the Pharisees who think they've got everything, and in the end, they have nothing. And Lazarus, who is like the disciple, is the one that suffers and is is actually left out in earth and yet rewarded in the end. And Jesus is teaching them about the Pharisees and how their, their holiness is false and it's fake. They practiced holy deception. They went around practicing like they were holy. And they called everybody out on their sin. You be careful what you're doing over there, pal. I see you. Oh, you better not do that at a certain time. You know what time it is. It's not time for that. They practiced holy deception, and they acted like they were holy. And they dressed in holy deception. They put on great gowns and pretty colors, and they walked around town with feathers like an ostrich, and everybody knew who they were. And if they crossed the street, you stopped was like a school bus when the flashing red light comes out all right that was the pharisees all right everybody had to stop and wait for the kids to get off the bus all right even when there were not any kids on the bus why does that guy have those lights on all right when the pharisees came everybody had to stop and pay attention and they prayed with holy deception you may not know this but the pharisees were common to go out into the marketplace in the place where they sent servants to shop the pharisees didn't go to the marketplace to get bread and fruit All right, they had servants for that. They went to the marketplace to actually disrupt commerce. All right, the Pharisees would go into the marketplace and plant their feet and start to pray and pray and pray and pray. And because the Pharisees were the lawgivers and were the spiritual guidance, supposed to be the spiritual guidance, all right? When they were praying, everybody had to stop and wait because you couldn't do something while the leader was praying, could you? I go to pastor's conferences and, and sometimes there's a lunch that comes with that pastor's conference. And, and I always say, if we're fixing to eat, let me pray. Okay, thank you, Lord, bless this. Thank you, thank you, thank you, honor you, amen. Right, but sometimes they'll ask a pastor to pray and it turns into a dissertation. And a bunch of fat pastors are in a room just salivating over the salad that's served first. And by the time he says amen, the ranch dressing is going around because we just aren't near starving, all right? You know what? When people are ready to eat, let's not have a dissertation. Let's just thank the Lord and honor him and eat. Amen? amen. The Pharisees would disrupt commerce with all they did, acting holy. But they were acting holy. Because their deception is that they thought they were holy. Jesus calls them the yeast. You're the yeast that infected. A little ounce of, you know that a little ounce of yeast will infect 200 pounds of bread. Did you know that? All right, a little bit, you never see the bread affecting the yeast. All right, you can put a ton of bread on an ounce of yeast. And the only thing that will happen to the yeast is it will be dissolved in the bread. It's still the same. A yeast, just a little tiny bit. We'll make a mess out of everything yesterday i was getting rid of a printer and this printer's been sitting on my bookshelf taking up space because it never prints so it's frustrated me for almost eight years and so yesterday i had the opportunity sherry was at a conference she wasn't around because when i throw stuff away sherry always double checks me all right but she was at a kind of like she's smirking now you threw that printer away i did i'm confessing it to her right now and that printer didn't want to go nicely all right, I was carrying it out. All right, and it's it's kind of a was a big clunky thing. And I'm carrying out and I got out of my study into our room and to the kitchen, fortunately, and I felt something dripping on my leg. I was wearing shorts and and just sneakers with no socks. And I felt something dripping on my leg and I looked down and it's black ink. And and this printer is telling me Either I really want to go in the blue can fast or don't throw me in the recycle can, but it's going there and it starts to leak and it's dripping and it's on my leg. You can see I still have some on my hand. All right, this little cartridge of black ink, all I was doing was throwing the printer away. An hour later, I'm still mopping ink. I had to go get the car stuff, all right? The Windex wasn't taking it off the tile floor. I had to go get the car stuff, the wheel cleaner. All right, just, it's like, oh man black ink on the floor and it's on my shirt it's on my shoe if you if you look at my leg I have black ink on my leg that ain't going away it was just a little bit of ink and it made such a mess that I wrestled with it for an hour and then the dogs show up it's like what's the black stuff on the floor can we walk in it no don't walk in it Caleb put these dogs away it only takes a little behavior to infect all the rest all of the Pharisees were not bad Nicodemus was a follower of Christ. All all the Pharisees were bad, but just a little bit of them, it only took some of them to poison it all. And they were poisoned because they were famous and popular and recognized. And Jesus is warning his disciples. He's warning his disciples that you're going to become as popular as them. You're going to become famous in just 12 weeks. Just 12 weeks from this moment... Their church is going to go from 70, like ours, to 3,000. All right, think about that. Think about that if that happened. All right, all of a sudden, those disciples are famous. They're leaders, they have influence. And Jesus is warning them don't be like the Pharisees when you get that influence. Stay humble, stay holy. It's important. That we serve God that way without pride, but humbly. It causes all kinds. Of, and the disciples, what happens next to stay in context, the next thing that you see is disciples go, Jesus, if that's going to happen, you better increase our faith. And Jesus said, if you just had this faith of a little seed, you could say to that mulberry tree, be cast into the, into the ocean, it would be so. Is the little mustard seed was the smallest seed that the Israelite farmer ever planted. It was actually carried in the wind and the mulberry tree lives 600 years you know the mulberry tree probably has as much under the ground as it does over the ground sometimes mulberry trees are 80 feet worth circumference worth of roots and 40 feet down was Jesus telling them this so they could rearrange the garden all right I don't want that mulberry tree anymore over there I want it over there I'll pray it's like no he wasn't it's a picture Jesus said he wasn't telling people to pick up mulberry trees and throw them in the ocean. Jesus said, if you have just a little bit of faith, anything can happen, including the Holy Spirit adding 3,000 people to your number in one day. What a mess that must have been. Can you imagine? Where will we park all those people? There's no parking. We don't have enough chairs. We'll have to set up portables and we don't have toilets. Where will everybody go? What will we do? What a bunch of problems, huh? And yet with a little bit of faith, Jesus said, you don't have to worry about all the details. It'll work out. The Pharisees were poisoned and they knew it and they were criticizing others. Here's the point of this introduction. The Pharisees loved to criticize other people because it made them feel good about themselves. Not much has changed, really, has it? Christians, we need to be careful that we don't become Pharisees and criticize others when we're just as messed up because criticizing others is an easily digestible poison. And it poisons us. So out of this passage that we just read, I come up with two questions. Just two questions. As Jesus teaches us, I have two questions that I want to ask. Number one, the thing that Jesus taught us is, am I causing others to sin? That's a big oz, isn't it? Am I causing others sin? Temptations are sure to come. Back to the beginning of this verse, verse one. Temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It'd be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and cast to the sea than to cause these little ones to sin. We live in a world where anything goes. In Southern California, if you want to do something weird, you're in a short line to do it because everybody's doing exactly what they want and it's infiltrating into the church. It's infiltrating into churches all over the place where compromising God's word and compromising the Bible is causing church to become more like a club than a church. What signifies us as a church? You want to know what signifies us as a church? The word of God. This is what we stand on. This is the only thing we stand on. And if I stand here or the next preacher or the next preacher or the next preacher and deletes one verse, fire him! Amen? Amen? I can promise you I know Don and he won't be doing that. If you haven't noticed already, the guy knows scripture like the back of his hand. He's amazing to me. All right? We stand on this God's word. Sherry brought me home a library yesterday of a, uh, of a person. And I always take libraries. Whenever a pa- an old pastor dies or, or something happens or they're moving, I always take libraries. I want your library. I'll take the whole thing. All right, I'll sort through it. Sometimes I find nuggets of gold. Sometimes I can pass it on to other young pastors that I know and help to stock their young library. Everything's becoming digital, and, and that's an advantage when you need to study in an airport. But nothing really takes the place of a real book. All right, and and it's nice to get that library. And so Sherry said, "I'm bringing home some books." It's like, oh goody, I will go through books. And so I noticed that they were in milk crates in the back of her Ford, and. And it was kind of doing this. And she was driving to Anaheim yesterday. And it's like, I better, get, I better get those milk crates out of the back of the little car. And so I did. And I carried them in. I put them in. I hadn't disconnected the printer yet. I was next. And I put them on the bed and, and went and did a couple more things. Wasn't priority on my list. I've had lots of libraries that I've gone through. And a little bit later, I started going through those books. And they were so amazing. They were the most amazing library I've ever, usually I pick out a few nuggets and I give the rest of them away. I ain't giving any of these away. These were some dynamic reformed theology books by the greats. I called my friend Nathan, who is a reformed uh, historian, and I said, guess what I got today? He goes, I can't even get that online. I go, well, I'll will you this volume. I have a a complete 15 set commentaries on Romans from the most amazing authors. And I just go, wow, this is good stuff. And the reason I inherited this guy's library is because he has compromised his faith and decided to follow sin in a church that promotes it. And so he doesn't need this library anymore. And my heart broke for him. I called Sherry and I said, my heart's breaking that he would know this and not want these books anymore about God's Word. You know what? The church is compromising to make people happy. Anytime we compromise sin, it's always going to make it easier to come to church. The culture invades the church, and we cannot allow that. And it talks here about temptations and how they come into the church. And sometimes there's big offenses, and sometimes there's little offenses, but they're all equal in stumbling others. What we do in our sin is not going to just affect us. Everything that we do that is against God's word digs a hole to stumble somebody in. Everything we do that is against God's word, our sin, causes somebody else to think it's okay. When I first started teaching Bible study, it was 1999, and, and I'd gotten saved, you know, I got saved in 1988 out of uh, stealing cars and breaking into houses and snorting dope and debauchery. And that was my lifestyle before that. In 1988, I got saved. And 11 years later in 1999, this guy challenged me to teach the Bible study class. And I said, that sounds kind of fun. I like that group. I'm already a part of it. So I began to teach Bible study class. And I realized that at church, I didn't smoke or cuss or tell bad stories. But when I went to work, I smoked and cussed and told bad stories. I don't have a problem with anybody smoking or cussing or telling bad stories. You do what you need to do. But for me, stepping into leadership, teaching Bible study, the problem was is that people at work started to find out that I was teaching Bible study and I was still sinning in front of them. And it stumbled them. And the people at church that I was telling stories about Jesus to on Sunday, I was hiding something from them that I was doing on Monday. And I realized, I need to repent from that. It's not because stopping smoking, cussing, trust me, it was hard to stop smoking and cussing and telling stupid stories at work. It was hard, but it was worth the effort. From that day, within a year and a half, I was in Bible school. Two and a half, three years after that, I was pastoring my first church. All I needed to do was just repent a little bit, and God was ready to use us. But as long as I held onto those strongholds, God wasn't going to let me into a position that I was able to stumble people by my dual lifestyle. You have to be the same person when nobody's watching as you are when everybody's watching. Jesus said, Stumbling people with your own sin, it would be better to have an untimely death. It'd be better if you just died. As far as the father's concerned, that's harsh, Jesus. What? He says it would be better, for, by your sin, stumbling someone else, it'd be better to have a big rock tied around your neck and thrown into the river. Hopefully, it's the Mojave River. <coughs> the ocean, the sea. It'd be better to be drowned. Well, I only partake in private. It's like, here's the problem with private sin. I only do, I, it's not hurting anybody. I only do it at home. It's my, sin, it's my thing. It's like, it's still stumbling you. Your sin is stumbling you, and you're a person that's stumbling. Woe unto you for stumbling yourself. It counts the same. My question is, am I causing people to sin? Because it has eternal ramifications on them and yourself. If your answer to yourself is yes, we need to get ourselves in check. We need to realize that God's looking at us saying, it'd be better if you were dead and you just quit stumbling people. Not that God's glad that you're dead or he wants to see that, but it would be better instead of continuing to stumbling somebody, it would be, the Gospel of Mark says, Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark, if your right hand stumbles your left hand, cut it off, right? If your right eye Offends my brother, poke it out. Is that because Jesus wanted Mark to tell everybody that we should be blinded in wheelchairs? No, it's a picture. It's a picture that anything that I do that offends you, as far as sin goes, I need to stop it. I need to cut it out of my life. Am I causing others to sin? We need to examine ourselves. Second thing is, am I learning to forgive? That's the second part of this. Am I learning to forgive? That's the hardest thing in a Christian life. It's to pay attention. Number one, verse three says, pay attention to yourself. Well, that's a huge sermon right there, isn't it? All by itself. Pay attention to yourself. Quit being a Pharisee and picking on everybody else, criticizing them. Look at yourself first. If your brother, and this includes brothers and sisters also, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Listen, sooner or later, everybody's going to offend you. If you hang out with somebody long enough, eventually everybody's going to offend you. All right, I don't understand why people don't buy American cars and motorcycles. I don't get it. It doesn't, I I don't understand. We're Americans, buy American cars. But the fact that you don't buy American cars, it's not a sin against me. It's a preference, right? Right? Do you not like me because I drive American cars? No, I love you even if you choose Japanese. It's okay. But I don't understand why you would. (laughs) But that's not a sin. It's a preference. And we get into that all the time. People go, I don't like the way they did things. And then we start thinking that it's spiritual, all right? And it's like, that guy doesn't drive right. That guy doesn't mow his yard. That guy doesn't get blah, 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 blah. And it goes on and on and on, doesn't it? And we get all spun out with what we don't like. And the truth is, is that we're supposed to be watching for sin, all right? The fact that you don't drive an American car is not sin against me. The fact that you're stepping out on your wife to have an affair with my sister, that's, I don't have a sister, so that's a safe analogy, all right? That's a sin. I need to call you, I need to rebuke you on it. Because it's dangerous. And we go and we, we need to rebuke each other in love. And if they repent, forgive them. But when we say rebuke, we all huddle from that because I'm not the one to rebuke, you know me, I'm like just a big sinner, how can I rebuke anybody? Right? I mean, they should be able to rebuke me. We're all equal, right? But Jesus says here, if your brother's in sin, go to him and rebuke him in love. Why? Because it's purifying. Because it saves him. Because it sets him to be clean. You know what? Half the time, people are sinning thinking they're getting away with it and it means nothing because nobody cares to say anything about it. Jesus said, say something about it. Go and rebuke them in love. It's purifying. Sins that are against us and against the church. Slander, lies, cheating, adultery, gospel, gossip, turning away from the faith. Jesus tells us to be responsible for other believers. We need to be responsible for our brothers and sisters in Christ that when we know they're in egregious sin, we go and love them out of it and confront them. person whose library I inherited yesterday, I just wonder... How many times did people, did he have to like move? Because people were, his brothers and sisters in Christ were hounding him to come back. Not letting him go. The Bible says to hang on to him like you're clutching them from the fires of hell yourself. All right, pick them out. Don't let him go. Don't be, don't be just lazy about chasing down your people and caring for them. It doesn't mean that we're Pharisees, but we can't have them leaving the faith in sin. Jesus tells us to be responsible for others, and he says to rebuke. But in order to rebuke somebody, I have to repent of my own sin first. Right? In order to rebuke you for your sin, I have to get prayed up and confessed up and make sure that I'm ready to go. i got to be good to go to help you get back on the path. And it is possible to do that. Trust me, if you're on your way to correct somebody in sin, the thing you should be doing while you're in your car and walking up their door and knocking is praying. For your words not to be so strong as the Holy Spirit's words in your life. Trust me, it's better for me if I know. If I know that you're spending your Friday nights at the tavern and you stay there too long and you drive home with a little buzz or better, and I know that's your habit on Friday and Saturday nights and Tuesday afternoons, and I know that's your habit, I should come to you and you're a believer. But trust me, I know lots of believers that are having some problems with their social issues. And I know you're driving drunk. I should come to you and say, call Uber, call me, call somebody and rebuke you. Number one, you should slow down on the drinky drinky maybe. All right, save some money, be cautious of where you're hanging out. But for heaven's sakes, quit driving drunk, right? because it's better for me to rebuke you than the deputy sheriff. Because when the deputy sheriff rebukes you, you're going to get some new bracelets and a nice orange suit. If it's Friday night and you're in Apple Valley, you're gonna get a ride to to Ontario probably. And your Jeep is, Jeep, sorry, not to pick on Jeep drivers. It's American made product, all right? Your Toyota is gonna get towed to impound. Your, your car's getting towed to impound, and before Monday morning, when you get Uber to take you back to Apple Valley, you're out 15 grand, and it's just started. Your insurance rates haven't even gone up yet. Isn't it better for me to rebuke you as a brother in Christ than the deputy sheriff? It's better, isn't it? But honestly, I don't think we care enough about each other to do that. Well, that would be weird to go rebuke him, because I, I stick and watch something on TV I shouldn't have, so. Well, will Repent! And then go rebuke your brother and care enough about him or her not to let them stumble. And remember this this is the number one rule of this that rebuke is between you and him or you and her. Don't go telling the neighbors. Well, I say, I wouldn't told Joe not to drink and drive anymore, and I saved him a DUI. And I, You know what? He, I hope he's not doing that anymore. You just accomplished the same thing that you, he needed to be rebuked for. Now you need to be rebuked. You're in the same sin. When you go to somebody and correct them, you take that to your grave. That's between you and that person, and it's private. Where there's repentance, there'll be forgiveness. Forgiveness is a twitchy thing to Christians, though. Because we know we need to forgive people like God forgave us. God says that your sin that I've forgiven you for is as far as the east from the west. You know what that means? I I can get on my bike and I can go east forever. And I'll always be going east. I can get on and I can ride west and I'll always be going west. And if I don't turn, east and west will never intersect. Do you realize if I start going north, eventually I'll go south? And if I go south, eventually I'll start going north again. God says from the east to the west, they're never going to exist again. God forgets the sins that you've been forgiven for. God doesn't hold them against you. Is it because God forgets? Because we say, well, I can't forget. Do you think God forgets the sins that you committed, God knew you were going to commit before he even created the foundation of the world? Oh, but he forgets. God doesn't forget. He chooses to treat you like he doesn't remember and that's how we're supposed to forgive people without condition i hear all the time well i can forgive them if they would just well you don't want to forgive them if you put conditions on it i can for without reservation i can forgive them but i can't trust him i've said that a thousand times i mean you know what i've stand corrected i've even preached it sometimes you have to forgive people but you can't trust them anymore all right i've said that It's like, and then I realize, I'm sure God, that God doesn't treat me that way. When God forgives me, he reestablishes the trust that he has in me. He doesn't hold anything against me. I'm not talking about pedophiles and weird things and going on. There's some things that that we have to put boundaries around trust. But honestly, most of us are just holding old stuff that doesn't matter. Marriages. Where there's no forgiveness. I encourage people when I counsel them in premarital that they work through their grief before they go into a marriage. Sherry and I took, Sherry and I have been married 30 years and, it's, and she has sustained some rocky roads. But the truth is, is that before we got married, we had some great counseling and we worked through issues of anger and betrayal and things that happened to us before we got married and forgave people. I had to forgive somebody, Sherry had to forgive somebody. Uh, I, I coax you in marriage. If there's somebody else that you're mad at or if you can't trust your partner because of what happened to you in the past, you need to get that straightened out. Marriage is about trust. And generally what we're mad about is something that happened way before we were even with them. But I have an issue we have to forgive without reservation. It means restoring that trust. And that's hard sometimes because they've, they've messed us up every time we've trusted them. How many times are we supposed to do this? What does the word say? Seven times a day? It's not likely that they're going to do it seven times a day. We're supposed to forgive them. Forgiveness, listen to me, people. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a promise. If I say I forgive you, I promise that I'm not bringing it up again. If I say I forgive you, I've checked it out. It's like spam on your computer. All right, do you get the stuff on your computer? Do you sure you don't want to reinstate your car insurance? Your car's warranty? All right, what do you do when you get the spam? You delete it. I don't want more warranty. I bought American. I don't need more car insurance, right? Delete, I delete it and delete it and delete it. And eventually my computer learns that I delete all that, they'll start to spam me about something else, right? But I don't wanna see it, I don't wanna read it. We need to delete it like spam. When we forgive somebody, I put it out of my vocabulary. I'm not speaking of it again. So that when that person sees me sitting in a corner talking to somebody else and I'm in low tones, they don't think I'm talking about them, right? Because what happens? As soon as somebody walks in and, and then the conversation stops, all right well they must be talking about me you know what that's a big jump because they might be talking about something personal between the two that doesn't involve you but because you can't trust them to say that they forgave you and they know you didn't they don't think they think you're talking about them still right if we actually forgive somebody we'll become known for being forgiving and trustworthy that it doesn't come up again i'm not remembering it anymore you know, we have folks in church that go, I can't forgive him or her for blank and blank because they did this or that. I can't forgive that. It's like, uh, you're choosing not to. It's not because you can't. We need to go ahead and try and forgive and not bring it up. When, when Jesus here talks about seven times a day, all right, I don't think it's actually because Jesus is afraid that people who have sinned against me are going to sin against me seven times a day. All right, When it comes up to me, Here's what happens when somebody betrays me or sins against me. I think about it a thousand times a day. I resonate with it. It's part of my angst. All right, I don't like it. And when I say I forgive you, and I mean it, within 15 minutes, what's happening in my head? It's going at it again. And I need to forgive it again in my head and in my heart. And in 30 minutes, what's happening in my head? It's going again. And I need to forgive it again. One version of this says seven times 70, which is 490. That's closer to what goes on in my head. 490 times a day, I need to forgive them over and over and over again until I've actually forgiven them. It is a process. And as I pray for them and love them, we will find out that I can actually forgive them. But I have to come to a point where I'm not interested in anymore. We, realize, we really need to realize the sphere of offenses. There are public sins against the body, and there are private and personal sins against us. All right, sometimes it's just things that we don't like. Public sins, adultery, slander, gossip, those that are against the church, we need to confess to one another. Private sins... I need to confess to God. I I was in a church in San Bernardino and this brother came to me and he goes, Pastor, I've been thinking some, some unusual, not so good thoughts about you and I need to share those with you. And I said, please don't, don't. Why would you do that to me? I already have weird thoughts about myself without any help from you. I got all I can handle. You don't need to confess. Hey, if you're thinking... You know what, Doug is not very nice to people who own Datsuns. All right, that might be a a poor example, but let's go with it. I don't like that about you. You know what, you know I'm just being facetious, right? Okay, I have owned a Mazda in my life or two. The truth is, is that those are sins that you might have that are personal that you just need to take to God. You don't need to tell me about everything. If you haven't sinned against me and it's in your head, it's a personal sin, confess it. Seneca of Rome said if everyone told everyone what they thought, there wouldn't be two friends left in the world. It's true, isn't it? If we told everybody what we think, you ever meet somebody? I, I, I did a funeral this week and uh, <laughs> it's funny. Not, the funeral's not funny. But uh, I, you always, I, it was one of an a old friend of mine has lost his son. And so it was tragic. But there were some old friends there that I hadn't seen in 35 years. And uh, one friend in particular came up to me and, hi, Dougie. How's it going? Hey, you put on a little in the last 35 years. It's like, oh, no kidding, really? You needed to tell me that? That's why those 32 Levi's don't fit anymore. I was wondering why I couldn't get in those. Right? It's like you don't need to tell everybody everything you're thinking. Filter people. When it comes to things that you're thinking about somebody, if it's egregious, if it's borderline on sin, confess it to God. All right? You don't need to tell everybody. In fact, you don't need to tell anybody but God. If you're having bad thoughts for someone, pray for their courage and comfort and wisdom. When I'm having issues with somebody and I don't like what somebody's doing or I'm having an issue with them, pray for their courage. Pray for their comfort. Pray for their wisdom. Pray that I can be a blessing to them in their life. Right? Pray for them that I can be better to them. I told you last week, I think, about my grandchildren coming home from VBS last week and Henry's five and Teresa's eight and they're sitting in the back seat of the car and Henry's learned how to pray. All right, he's five. And he says dear god help teresa to be nicer in jesus name and i thought wouldn't it be better if we said dear god help me to be nicer to teresa in jesus name henry didn't think that was a good idea but i think it's a good idea if we're having bad thoughts about somebody pray for them if we're having covetous thoughts about somebody Give generously to a ministry. If you're wishing, if you're bitter at somebody for something they have that you don't have, you have having covetous thoughts. And covetousness is one of the sins God says, uh-uh. Don't want what eight years. Your neighbor, what's the 10th commandment, all right? Don't want your neighbor's wife or his house or his donkey, all right? That includes his Harley, his old lady, and his crib. <laughs> Got it? Sorry for all you females that are not old. You're young and beautiful always. Just help you understand that it's, it's as current today as it was then. Don't want stuff that ain't yours and don't plot to get it. If you're in a situation to where you're plotting to have something or wishing or bittering something that somebody else has, start to give generously to a, to a ministry. Generally, I find that Christians who are having trouble with this are not tithing but that's a whole nother sermon. We need to give generously as God leads us and we'll find the blessings that he has given us. If you're having lust, like some of us men are having lust like a pirate, I got lust, all right? If you're having, gentlemen, if you're having lust like a pirate and you can't control that, you need to join a men's group, a men's Bible study. There's a men's Bible study going on in, in pastor's office and pastors study every Wednesday night at 6.30. And we're looking at 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. But we hardly ever get really into that. You know what we talk about? Men's stuff. Arr. Men's stuff that I can't even say from the pulpit. I'm looking at my men's group in here and they're going, don't go there, pastor. <laughs> can't talk about it. I can't even talk about what we talk about on Wednesday night on Sunday morning from here. We talk about everything. Amen, men? Amen, amen. You guys know. Sometimes it's a little shocking to ourselves that we've crossed, wow, we really crossed a bridge here that we've never crossed in Bible study before. I don't care. If we can't talk about men's issues in a men's Bible study group, we're wasting our time. If you're having lust like a pirate, join a men's Bible study. It'll certainly help you get there. We need to do what we can to prevent that sin in our lone life. In conclusion, oh yeah, cool. Got my minutes back from last week, huh? In conclusion, am I causing others to sin? Number one, we need to examine ourselves. That's the rule here. Examine yourself and repent from destructive behaviors and begin to fill in the holes we have dug around our people with God's word. God's word. How do I fix me? God's word. How do I secure their future? How do I secure my children's future? How do I secure my friends and coworkers' future? God's word. Spend some time in it not reading a verse how about memorizing a verse all right sherry told informed me this morning that we're memorizing colossians all right she says she is but I, I it's hard to listen in the radio all the time and not go along with it all right it was her idea to go to seminary all right at the time i just want to learn how to play piano man am i glad she got me to seminary i'll listen to her we're memorizing colossians i paul say it well how's it go Say it. You're on the spot, Sherry. (laughs) Oh, I know! It's hard! I had to Google memorization techniques. I want to memorize Scripture. I want to put some in my heart. Take that Scripture and look at it and pretend like you got to stand here and present it next week. And teach it. We should all be studying like we have to teach it. All right, I don't expect you to. But what if you had to, could you? Could you take a verse out of Luke and teach it? If you study, you will. Number two, am I learning to forgive? Truth will heal quicker than a burial. I have have waited in my life for people who have offended me when I was 19 to die so that I could have the last laugh. Right? You know what I found out? That burial only makes it harder to forgive them. I wish I would have when they were walking. It doesn't help that I outlived them because now they're free of it and I'm still in bondage. Old grievances still bleed that they're not addressed. Remember what your mom said? If you pick it, it won't heal. We need to address issues. When I got saved, I was raised. You got four more minutes. Still bear with me. I was raised in a Christian home with a preaching deacon. My mom was a deaconess, I was raised in a good Baptist church, and I was part of it. I loved going to church, I loved God's word. I went to Christian school, K-12, through every day, a Bible lesson. Trust me, it was like seminary for kids, you learned everything. And in 1977, in my junior year of high school, my youth pastor did something that caused him to disappear that day, and he was gone. And I had really bonded with him. He was my pastor. I was 17. And he was my youth pastor. And one day he just disappeared without even saying goodbye. And this youth group that I was a part of, I was the one that had bonded to him the closest because he was weird. And I like weirdos. And he was my friend. He wasn't just my friend. He was my pastor. And in one day he went away. And starting the next day, I was, seeing, I was kind of just seeing this little girl and her brother had weed, all right? And I knew that he had weed. And the next day after that betrayal or whatever it was, I was smoking weed, 17 years old, 1977. Before I graduated from Christian school in 1979, I was going to Christian school snorting cocaine. Not even 18 years old yet. And my life had taken a change because somebody had betrayed me. And for the next 10 years, I stole everything, drank everything, smoked everything, did everything with everybody that wanted to do anything with, wanted to do it with me. I did everything, broke into houses, slept in the park, having fun until Easter Sunday, 1988, on Rialto Avenue down by the jail in San Bernardino. I was begging for my life from a guy that was gonna kill me and I didn't have a gun but he did. I found out later he was only going to shoot me in the knees. Whew, I was glad about that. Really? This is the group I was running with. These are my friends. And I repented from that and I ran to my dad. My dad already bailed me out from meth a couple of times, so it wasn't like he was in denial. I went to my dad. I told him everything. I started going to church. Again, a different church than the first one. And a great pastor there Rob Casada, who married Sherry and I, started to ask me, because I started to meet with him, he started to ask me questions. Why are you so angry at church? It'd been 11 years, 12 years. I didn't know why. Just don't like how everything goes. Everybody's square. Nobody here has ever stole a car. Nobody says the F word like me all the time. Right? Everybody's square. I'm not fitting in here. He goes, what are you so mad about? And he began to walk me through all the way back to my youth pastor when I was 17 years old and I realized I'm still mad about that. I'm picking at it all the time. And he helped me investigate that a little bit. And you know what I found out? That my youth pastor was thrown out by situations that weren't even him. And I began to be able to forgive him after a dozen years and time being arrested, which isn't fun. And no matter what it looks like on TV, it ain't fun and repenting from that, having my car stolen so I know what that feels like, (laughs) and becoming straight with God, and becoming straight with people and letting that forgiveness go and forgive because it was permeating my life. It was affecting every relationship I had. It was affecting everything I did to hold that in and not let that go. Forgive like we've been forgiven, without condition, without reservation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for loving us so much and not holding our grievances against us. Lord, thank you for Jesus that came and paid that price for our sins so we can be justified and clear with you again. Lord, I ask that we would indeed examine ourselves and be sure that we are clear with you and others as we go through this life. In Jesus' name, amen.